0: The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I have long been fascinated by how different the LGBTQ experience is depending on where you live, and that is even more true for those living outside of the U.S. In fact, when we talk about the LGBTQ plus experience and use that phrase, most often we're talking about the Western LGBTQ experience. So today, we're going to hear from Adafi Okoro, Adafe group in Nigeria, where in 2014, the Same-Sex Marriage Prohibition Act was signed into law. That act banned any form of public affection between same-sex couples. It forbid them from living together and also made it illegal to own or operate any sort of organization or business that catered to queer people. This forced the community to move underground. And as you'll hear, Adafe used to go to these underground parties where they'd meet and dance, there'd be drag, And it also would serve as a place to get tested for HIV and learn about safe sex. So all of that is coming up. Now, as a reminder, this month, we're dipping into our archive. This was originally taped in May of 2019. It aired on the Luminary app. And since then, Gaddafi has written a book. It is not out yet, but it will be coming next year, 2022. So stay tuned for that. There was a law that passed in 2014 in Nigeria that made same-sex relationships illegal. I want to definitely get to that, but before, while you were growing up, what was the general feeling and attitude towards gay people?
1: Generally, Nigeria is predominantly patriarchy. So, like, men are supposed to be men and women are supposed to stay at home, just like United States 60 years ago. But the was a book that was done by Amnesty International in 2013 that shows that 98% of Nigerians believe that gay people are the cause of the country problem. But growing up really, really young, I was kind of effeminate, but because of the kind of violence I faced as a kid that people tell me, why do you behave like that? You should play soccer, things like that made me kind of change how I behaved to become on the extreme right, to be like very, very masculine. And I grew up in a predominantly Christian environment. And the Christian religion, they don't believe that you should be gay. Like if you are gay, you are possessed by a demonic spirit or some things like that. So it's really a long way for me to fight through all those kind of thoughts and really say that I am gay. It's hard to grow up in such kind of settings and think that you are gay. Wow. So when did you start to feel comfortable telling people? So, people who are in closets always know that it is hard to come out of your closet. It is very difficult. I fought with myself almost three years. I dated a girl. I joined the church, a seminary. I, I became a Pentecostal pastor. Like, all these things were like, I knew that I'm gay, but I just don't want to believe I was gay. But one day, I was reading on the internet, and I saw a quote from Avimik that talked about how we give power to our oppressors by not allowing ourselves to be our true selves. So I ran out on the feed, and I was saying to myself, am I really gay, things like that. So one day, I went on the internet, and I discovered a gay dating app called Manja. It's popular in, like, Arab, and some part of Africa back then. What's it called? Manjam. Manjam. Gotcha. So on Manjam I met a guy who told me that if you have feelings for other guys, you will be gay. And that's when I said, Oh, maybe I'm gay. Wow. How old were you? Nineteen. But before then I've had like maybe masturbated with a guy or like play with a guy, but I didn't accept that I was gay until I was nineteen. And so was there any
0: form of gay community or any community like in Nigeria where you were growing up?
1: When I was growing up, I didn't find community because I was a Christian gay guy in Aiden. But when I grew up and really, really accept my sexuality, I created a community. And that was what led me to where I am today. By the means of creating community is HIV rate among gay men in Nigeria is very, very high. So they have what they call underground parties. Underground parties are opportunity for healthcare providers to be able to test gay men. So when you organise an underground party, people will come with their clothes and inside the underground party change to like drag. And often people behave in a way that is just disruptive in the underground parties. And then people get tested, people meet sexual partners. People get condoms, loops, sexual education. That was when I discovered that there is a community which is underground. And, and so
0: it's testing, it's education, and it's a party and underground. It's, yeah. all, it's all together, everything.
1: People drink, people party, people change into drag, people do a contest whereby they're like, who is the most dressed person, or things like that. People travel. Like from rural areas, just to attend this party and to be able to find community. So, HIV testing service providers are usually the people that provide what we call community.
0: And so, is there a stigma against like getting tested because they like will then think you're gay?
1: Yeah, because what resulted to the law was that. So, in March, 2013, the government provide a law that discriminates gay men to have access to health care services. And that discrimination led to a prohibition of gay men to be able to have sexual intercourse by saying that the law prohibits gay marriage by 14 years imprisonment, 10 years for service providers because those people who are providing access to health care, they believe that they are the cause of why gay men exist in the country. So, And secondly, HIV is very stigmatized in Nigeria because people believe that, like HIV-positive person could transmit HIV through like touching you or kissing you, because of low forms of education. Not until we started hearing news that Princess Diana and other people have kissed HIV-positive persons, there was very high stigma. For HIV positive persons. And they now believe that gay people are the cause of why HIV is being spread around the country because they're like gay people have sex with animals or like things like that. So that perception really made HIV stigmatized in the community. And there is like internal stigma within the gay community for people who are HIV positive. Oh,
0: and because they made it illegal for gay service providers. HIV education was a part of that. Yeah. So they couldn't even tell that factually you can't get HIV from kissing somebody. Yeah.
1: That's wild. (laughs) So, like, even up to now, when they announced U equals U, I was in the U.S. then, and my friends were like, no, even though they announced this is just for us to be able to have sex, and it's just, like, denying the fact that you could still have HIV from being... It's an HIV-positive partner. Like, HIV work is a big part of my life because I have a lot of friends that died from being HIV-positive.
0: And when you say your friends ask these questions, are these friends back in Nigeria? Yeah. Okay, and I guess for people who don't know, we should say that U equals U is a campaign to spread awareness about being undetectable, yeah. which means you can't spread the virus. True. And so that kind of is a higher level of understanding, it seems like, than the public has in Nigeria?
1: Yeah, so the fight that led me to being displaced from Nigeria was when the government of Nigeria passed the same-sex marriage prohibition act that pro- prohibits people from being able to be gay or amorphous show of public affection is criminalized by 10 years imprisonment. And there are seven states in Nigeria which practice Sharia law. In Sharia law, is punishable by being stoned to death. I, I know of like lesbians that have been put in a drum and drowned to death or beaten on the streets. I myself I've been a victim of two mob violence. Whereby I try to meet somebody on a gay dating app, they lure me in and other guys come in, beat me up and shame me. Do you watch Game of Thrones? Yeah. You see when Ceci walk? So I, I went through the walk of shame.
0: So you're walking down the street,
1: yeah nude. Nude. Be beaten. So that led me to form a community organization called International Center for Advocacy on Right to Health that advocate for gay men to be able to have access to treatment. At the end, the government of Nigeria gave us the right for gay men to have access to treatment, not as identified as gay, but as MSM, men who have sex with men. But there is still a lot of structural intervention for healthcare care providers like nurses. Because if someone is HIV positive and is a milder, like, oh, you allow people to fuck you in your ass. That's why you become HIV positive. So mm-hmm. this was like a very strong fight. We were fighting in Nigeria, fighting against stigmatization. That work put me at risk. And in 2016, after I returned from the World AIDS Conference in South Africa, a mob came to my place, like broke my door, dragged me out, beat me on the streets, stripped me naked and did a work of shame to be able to say that... They are sweeping behind my feet, saying that they are banning me from being a member of the community. After that incident, I blacked out. I was taken to a clinic, and when I woke up from the clinic, I knew that if I want to leave, it wouldn't be in Nigeria anymore. So I easily got a visa to the United Arab Emirates. But as a gay man, you can't seek protection in Dubai because they even quarantine. Uh, HIV-positive persons. I'm not HIV-positive, but I'm very strongly affiliated to that community because of my work. So I returned back to Nigeria. I was in hiding.
0: And you were in hiding because you were, at this time, a a public, openly gay person. Yeah,
1: because I've been outed. While I was hiding, from August, I came back to Nigeria, to Semteba. In October, my names and photographs were published by Avac. Avac is an advocacy microbial vaccine organization in New York City that advocate for like HIV vaccines. So they published my name as a grassroots award-winning activist that advocate for gay men to have access to treatment. This put my life more at risk. Oh, it put a target on your back. Yeah. So they pasted my f- photos on the wall saying that I should be brought down dead or alive. I left my apartment I, where I was hiding. I went to an hotel room. Then I traveled to Cairo. I was in Cairo I have visa to Europe, I have visa to America. I was like, I have to go somewhere. So America is that place where everybody dream to come to. Because the perception about Western civilization and things like that, Bill and Melinda Gates am a recipient of this vaccination, BCG that prevents you from having polio. So America has been like that institution that everybody wants to come to. And it's interesting with,
0: as different as our political climate is now under the Trump administration and how we often talk about our loss of moral authority abroad, it seems like this American dream, this American ideal of being this place of opportunity still hasn't waned.
1: No. So we are living in a bubble. Outside, Everybody living outside America are living in a bubble. No matter the news or anything, in Nigeria, people still think that Trump is a very, very good president. Because America is held in a very high value by foreigners. So not until I came into New York City, and they told me that I asked for protection. I don't have family or friends here. And they told me that we have to take you to a detention center. So I didn't know that all asylum seekers are kept in mandatory detention by federal law in America. And so you were handcuffed and taken there. They handcuffed me, threw me into a bus and it drove me to New Jersey from New York. So when I got to New Jersey, the strip of my clothes and everything gave me jail clothes. Then I realized that I was being kept in a jail. No information, no access to call my family or talk to anybody. And my family did not know I flee Nigeria. So people think I was dead or something because for six months I was in the detention center I have no connection to the outside world. And they were not keeping you up to date on your like immigration status by they, any means? They were because after seven days of being there, an asylum officer came and interviewed me. After they compared the interview with what I said at the airport, that it was consistent, they gave me a date to come to the courts. Then I was looking for pro bono legal counsel because I came to America with less than $200. And lawyers cost like 15000 to $30,000. And... I got legal representation from Immigration Equality. They represent asylum seekers who are LGBTQ or HIV positive. So when I got the legal representation, we went to court and filed for asylum. So they said, the judge said, I know that LGBTQ people in Nigeria are persecuted, but how can you prove to me that you are a gay man from Nigeria? So I have a friend who works with USAID knows that I was working for this organization because USAID was funding my organization, came to testify in court that he knows me from Nigeria. He had a photo of both of us in Nigeria, so it was easy for me to prove beyond that. The award was online. My lawyer logged in and screenshot my Grinder profile, Manja profile, all the gay profiles. I have my picture on them. And I went to the aid conference in South Africa because of my work for gay men. So it was pretty easy for me to prove that I was a member of the LGBTQ community in Nigeria.
0: That's really fortunate and unique for asylum seekers to have that much proof.
1: Yeah, I am like one in one million. Because asylum seekers usually do not just fly to America. People who do not have visa, they fly to Brazil. While I was in the detention center, I saw a lot of people that flew to Brazil and go through like Uruguay, the, like all through the journey, Panama, they get robbed on the way and they lose all their documents, phone, maybe eight to nine months, and get to Mexico and cross to California. And they are brought from California straight to New Jersey. I went and did
0: some reporting at the Mexican border and, you know, touring some migrant shelters, which it's, like, absolute squalor. But some of the, a lot of the people we met there, they were asylum seekers who were not being let in the country because they were being asked for physical evidence and mm-hmm. proof that their home countries were unsafe. And like you said, these are people who had the one shirt they were wearing. Yeah. And apart from, like, scars, it's like there's not an easy way to prove these things. You've lost
1: everything. One thing, that is going to change the world in the future is like technology through like crypto banking because people can actually lock their documents through an encrypted crypto banking. But how would you know that you are going to flee your country? Because an asylum sinker does not prepare three, five months and say, oh, in five months, I'm going to flee from Nigeria. It's just like impromptu. The next day you have to flee. So when you are in that flight or fright mode, you're not thinking of crypto banking to save a document or things like that.
0: I didn't even know that was possible. It's hurting. documents.
1: Yeah. So like you could look for five to ten friends and lock and all of you have the code and when you get there you unlock it. Wow. You said that you were in the detention
0: center for six months. Yeah. Was that a safe place to be openly gay?
1: No. Because people who are in the detention center are from countries like your country. They are from third world countries whereby they still have high rate of homophobia perpetuated against gay people. I, as a gay man that is, like, kind of a little bit masculine, do not really feel a lot of discrimination. But, like, transgender people who their birth certificate sales male are kept in a male detention center, even though all their officials show that they're female. So there's a high rate of, like, sexual violence can be perpetrated against them but even me when somebody got to see my document that I'm seeking asylum based on my sexual orientation all these like South American guys call me Marie Cone. they make joke of me or things like that I didn't know that Maricone was like offensive so when they say it, I just laugh and one day one guy told me that don't you know that it means forgot or things like that I was like oh that's offensive but I don't really care because that was not what brought me there what brought me there was my asylum And I just want to get out of there as fast as I can. Of
0: course. You mentioned trans people. What was the understanding and awareness of trans people in Nigeria?
1: Even to today, there is still a high rate of ignorance about what it takes to be a trans person in Nigeria. Because, like the way straight people have patriarchy, straight men have patriarchy, and they don't want to. Thinking about gender roles, they're like, who's going to be the man? Who's going to be the woman? Is the same thing that gay people who have internalized phobia think of trans people. Like somebody is courageous enough to be like, I'm not a man, I'm going to be a woman. I think it's offensive in Nigeria because people will be like, look at this one. There are governors who are gay who we know from the community. There are musicians who are gays who we know from the community. But your socioeconomic status determines the level of safety you could be afforded. That's a pretty
0: big lifestyle change for you to be now living in America openly not having as many safety issues having a boyfriend <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it's very interesting when I first came to America I was released in April and I was Pride in June in New York City and all my friends were going to Pride all my friends are then so they were like let me join them for Pride I said no I'm not going to go I still have self some kind of self-perpetrated stigma that I was afraid to see like gay people of different colors and shade. I was like, no, I can't do that. I think I'm pretty conservative in that point. But living in America, especially in New York City, have made me understand that if you are not yourself, you are just doing a disservice to yourself. Because when you truly live freely of any judgment, it just gives you that form of life. That you never ever expected. Like, if I used to tell everybody around me that if I die today, I will leave a very fulfilled person because I've never able to like feel the quality of life I have right now, smile every day. That this was a dream I have as a child. Like my salary in a year, I think like eight or nine members of my family might not make that a year. So it's not like I don't want to be wealthy. I just want to be happy. And being happy is not being in any form of closet. People are in different kinds of closet. You might be diabetic, you might be having cancer, or you might be just afraid to tell a secret. Is a form of closet. And when you're in a closet, it affects your mental health and stability in a way that you can't even explain. That if you're able to voice it out to one person, it gives you that form of strength to be able to like move on with it. Even though you can't voice it to anybody, just run on the street and shout, I am gay. (laughs) I think that knowing that this is who you truly are helps you to be better.
0: Yeah. You've mentioned a few times about how different the perception of African-Americans are, as opposed to someone like you who grew up in Africa, Nigeria? Was that something you had to learn when you got to America?
1: Yeah. (laughs) I never knew about the difference between an African American and a white person. I thought that everybody were Americans. Now that I'm in America, I know that there's a difference between a white and an African American, and there's a difference between an African American and a Nigerian. And the difference is purely based on perception. I was born in the 99.9% black country. See the black governor, black president, bankers, like Oyangas, everybody are black people. But if I start staying in a neighborhood and going to school with, like, I'm the only black person among white people, my self-esteem and my perception would be like, oh, white people are really, really racist. The perception is that I, as a foreigner, have an objective view. person born in this country have a subjective view. If you come to Nigeria, you'll be like, oh, the beaches are nice, very sunny. I'm like, what? I grew up in Nigeria, very corrupt. Anti, you understand, because I am subjective to my lived experience, the environment, and the time that happened to me. So different things influence how you think about the particular situation.
0: And so the assumption is that you're above racism.
1: I am not above racism. But if I want to dismantle racism, I have to work with people that are racist to be able to dismantle it. So what you know today, you didn't know it 10 years ago. I used to be a very conservative Christian. I preached that being gay is evil. I said that gay people will go to hell and be destroyed. Today, I'm saying a different thing, that gay rights should be promoted. Why is that? For people to change, they have to be a favorable climate, and for people to change, they have to be exposed to what we make them to rethink a different option. If you are born in North Carolina, maybe a small town. You are born in North (laughs) Carolina. Geez, why did I use that example? Sorry. If you are born in Alabama, you're in Alabama in a small town of fifteen thousand people, and everybody there are like evangelicals all you know is what you are taught time place and people happen to us all if you are born in Saudi Arabia there's 99.9 percent chance you will be Muslim if you are born in Israel or Jerusalem you might be a Jew and all these factors does not mean that the other person is an illiterate or stupid or because you know something different makes you smarter than that person. It's just the circumstances you are exposed to, the lived experiences that make you make a decision or the other. A lot of people that are born in North Carolina with you might be very, very racist, but if they are gay, they would have suffered or been a member of a marginalized community and feels how it takes to be somebody that is marginalized and they might think differently. Or if they're in an athletic team with black people and they see the way black people interact with them or if they are in the military or something, their perception will change if they return back to North Carolina. So it's not people's fault sometimes that they don't know. It is their faults if they are being ignorant. Being ignorant is different from being naive. Naive is that I don't know, but ignorant is that I know I choose to pretend like I don't know. There is a difference that if people are naive, you need to educate them. And for you to educate them, they need a favorable climate. It's not this current climate that is just shouting at each other. You need to come together and discuss
0: about it. You know, before I let you go, you mentioned the shelter that you're the director for, the RDJ.
1: Yeah, it's for LGBTQ asylum seekers and migrants who are experiencing homelessness in New York City. When you
0: were released from detention center, did you use a shelter
1: like that? No, I used the YMCA shelter. And the YMCA shelter, I paid for two weeks. From there, I moved into my friend's place. She came to do a PhD dissertation in Nigeria in my clinic. Then we met. So she was like, oh, on Facebook, she was like, oh, I live in New York City. I moved from Baltimore to New York City. Come and stay in my place for three months. When you get on your feet, move to your own place. That is so fortunate. So for (laughs) people who don't have a friend like
0: that, who need a shelter, how did they know that you exist?
1: So like in New York City, if you type refugee shelter on your phone, we are the first people that comes on Google because we have been searched a lot and Google have optimized it. So we do not need paid advertising <laughs> because anybody that just type refugee shelter in New York City finds us. So they call us and if they are LGBTQ specific, they can fit. If they are not, we have other chains of shelter we could refer them to. But if you don't have social security, you are not eligible for city shelter. And most asylum seekers do not have any formal status, so they are just left in limbo. So what we do is that we provide both accommodation, transportation, feeding and everything that they will need until they have their work authorization. How long do typically people stay with you? So we if the asylum seeker is granted protection, like if it's granted asylum in a detention center and is released, if we pick them from a detention center, we give them three months to stay with us because they already have a status. But if they don't have status, they typically stay between six to nine months. And some people have family members. So if we pick them from a detention center or friends, they stay one week, find a family member, and we'll pay for their flight, maybe Ohio, Mississippi, and fly to meet the family member to join them.
0: Wow. And you make a big point to say that the administration does not shared data on how many asylum seekers are seeking asylum due to their sexual identity or gender identity?
1: No. So I think that this is like a big thing for service providers because a lot of people who are coming are even afraid to say that they are LGBTQ because they have suffered. Like some people come to my shelter, they are talking to me, I are like, do you know I'm a gay guy? So why are you afraid to tell me about you being a member of the LGBTQ community? There's a guy from Saudi Who always say that my asylum claim is very, very complicated? I like, I know what your asylum claim is, and I have been there. I know how it is to be there and being afraid to share your experience because of the kind of persecution you suffer in your own country. That is why (laughs) it is good for people to educate themselves about this issue because there's a lot of myths about what it takes to be an asylum seeker.
0: And that was Adafe Okoporo. If you want to find out more about him and his work, you can find him on social media under his name. He's on Twitter and Instagram at Adafi Okoporo. And then if you know anything about me, you know that I'm obsessed with the life and work of the great writer, gender theorist, elder, Kate Bornstein. I got to talk to her for the podcast a couple of years ago. And next week, we're going to feature a brand new interview with her. So stay tuned for that. That's next Tuesday. Until then, come find us on social media. I'm on there at Masters one The podcast is on there at LGBTQPod. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. See you next week. Bye.